This episode of Asymmetrical Haircuts is supported by JusticeInfo.net. There's no question that if the Office of the Prosecutor were to recommit attention to potential U.S. personnel that have been deployed in various conflict situations, there would probably make it more difficult to do assistance. So that's the, that's the arrangement that we're in. Medieval crimes are being committed. I come with clean hands. Victims of horrific crimes want justice. We don't have anything better than this. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. All rise. Before we begin, a quick heads up that you'll hear some beeps through best audio. We couldn't edit them out. That's just the way it is. Enjoy the interview. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. So it was a really intense end of the year, wasn't it? Because we had the annual meeting of the International Criminal Court, the Assembly of States parties, and there were this ton of side events. One of the striking things, at least for me, was that there was quite a strong United States presence there. Yeah, because we really should remember that the US-ICC relationship has been quite rocky. It's not long since former prosecutor Fatou Bensouda and one of her close associates, Pakiso Mochochoko, were sanctioned by the U.S. government, albeit the government of former U.S. President Donald Trump. But still, that that's only a couple of years ago. Yeah, I mean, that's not to say sort of way back. I mean, we've got things like what was popularly known as the Hague Invasion Act. I mean, the the tension of the relationship is is really strong there, although we're really conscious how important the US has been in the whole international justice scheme, like in the setting up of the international criminal tribunals and you know, pushing and backing a really broad range of different accountability options worldwide. And now it seems they want to slip back into that role and they've appointed the an ambassador at large for global criminal justice, Beth van Schaak, I guess we can say a friend of the pod, Yeah, I mean, she's been on before. She's written about Syria, particularly in her academic past. And uh, we've had her on talking about that. And uh, she, I mean, you pronounced her name perfectly. I tend to say Shaq um, in my sort of Britishness. And her name does have two Cs, which she pointed out to me when I misspelt it on Twitter. Sorry, Beth. And I had to explain how, you know, despite living here for many, many years, I'm not completely in Gebirge. I'm not completely Dutch. So she is a friend, as you say, of the podcast. So we thought we'd invite her on. And we thought about things to ask her. Of course, we're going to talk about the US-ICC relationship, but also Ukraine, different forums for accountability, the US cooperation with the ICC, but also the US position on the court of aggression and lots more things and justice initiatives. So here is us chatting to Beth van Schaak. Beth, it's lovely to see you, but we only saw you a few weeks ago. There you were, larger than life. Two different speeches, I think, to the Assembly of States parties of the ICC. Big delegation, you know, in every room, doing different things. How is this practical working relationship with the ICC going? Well, first, let me say thank you so much for having me on the show. As you know, I'm a big fan and a regular listener, so it's great to be back again in my new incarnation as ambassador at large for global criminal justice. 
Yeah, it was terrific to be at the ASP this year. We, of course, participated last year, but it was mostly virtual. So our Undersecretary for Civilian Security, Human Rights, and Democracy gave the U.S. intervention and was able to announce the reset of the relationship between the U.S. and the ICC. So that was really exciting. And now we've had a year since then to continue to cement and build upon that announcement. We had a a wonderful side event, which colleagues helped to organize on witness relocation. I also participated in an event at the plenary on witness protection. These are two very high priorities for me as ambassador at large um, for this this tenure of mine. As you know, witnesses are the soft underbelly of the system of international justice, and we need to have a better system to protect them. And, And by that, I mean not only percipient, vulnerable survivor witnesses, but also those insider witnesses that for whatever reason, have made the decision that they want to testify and they're willing to discuss system of abuse, the chain of command, the order of battle, the way in which violence unfolded, decoding, coded language, all of that. We know that insider witnesses are incredibly important to international justice. And so I'd love to be able to help in a multilateral way build upon the system we have of protection. You say multilateral way, but does that mean the US being involved in some form? I would hope so. We have done witness protection in the past, both with the ICC and with other justice efforts. And so I would hope that we would be able to contribute to this. During the witness relocation side event, Sweden made a very important point, which is some states have difficulty bringing in insider witnesses if there is derogatory information against them, if they're members, for example, of the Refugee Convention. And so we're exploring what pathways exist to bring individuals in through different immigration pathways. And we're hoping to create a set of models that other states might be able to look at as well. But in addition to this work on witness protection and witness relocation, it was also wonderful to be able to deliver the U.S. intervention and to recommit to a level of support to the court As you all know, and I think you've covered in the past, the United States has been able to provide a whole range of assistance to international justice efforts, the ICC, but also other international institutions like the IIIM in Myanmar, like the IIIM that's focused on the conflict in Syria, and then also domestic cases under universal jurisdiction. So this assistance runs the gamut, everything from diplomatic support, as we were able to provide in the ASP, but also witness issues, as I've discussed, Fugitive tracking, we have re-enlivened our war crimes rewards program, and particularly the campaign involving Joseph Coney. Information sharing, support for the cases and, and helping the prosecutor to identify the best evidence and to corroborate potentially their theories of, of liability and of responsibility. And then just being, I think, I hope a good broker and a member of the international community that's that's supportive of the whole system. And as my predecessor, Ambassador Rapp says, the ecosystem of international justice, because it has many different parts that are all very interdependent upon each other. And now, of course, one of the big stories is Ukraine, and you also have cooperation and sharing of information uh, on Ukraine with the ICC has now been allowed by Congress. Could you characterize that as maybe starting to change the kind of exception rule of the US that they tend to have to these big, uh, or at least to the ICC? Indeed, Congress was very active last term when it comes to the International Criminal Court and the imperative of accountability for Ukraine. So in addition to the changes to ASPA, which I'll touch on in a minute, I also want to highlight the fact that we now have the ability to exercise present-in jurisdiction over individuals who stand accused of committing war crimes. 
Our previous statute only allowed for jurisdiction when either the victim or the perpetrator was a U.S. person. And now we have the ability also to exercise jurisdiction where the perpetrator is present in or found in the United States. And so regardless of the nationality of either the perpetrator or the victim, this was very much inspired by the situation in Ukraine and the recognition that if a Russian perpetrator manages to make their way here, we would not be able to prosecute that person for war crimes committed against Ukrainian victims. And now that that gap in our law has been filled by Congress. Congress also made some important changes to the American Service Members Protection Act, which was a relic of the Bush era and a a high degree of hostility toward the court. Over the years, many of the most sort of I don't know what the right word is. The, 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 the ASPO has been declawed over the years. Maybe that's the way to say it. And bits and pieces have fallen away or they've been allowed to expire on their own terms. What remains now is a situation in which there's a general prohibition on a whole range of support with a giant exception in the Dodd Amendment that allows for us to provide assistance to international efforts to bring to justice individuals accused, foreign nationals, of war crimes, crimes against humanity, or genocide. The Dodd Amendment used to include a list of individuals, many of whom are now sort of moot (laughs) because they've already been brought to justice or are no longer with us. And so Congress has now added Russia to the list. And so it's very clear now a, a very strong congressional mandate that the United States should be supporting international efforts to bring to justice perpetrators from that conflict. And there's also a mention specific to witnesses and victims in that law. So another very clear mandate from Congress. Congress also lifted the funding restriction in another statute dating from earlier than ASPA, the Foreign Relations Appropriation Act. There was a full-scale ban on any funding to the ICC, and now any funding decisions would go through ASPA and the Dodd Amendment. So we're in a much better place now to be supportive, not just with in-kind support, but also being able to potentially provide financial support. And I, in particular, would really love to see the United States make a gift, a voluntary contribution to the Trust Fund for Victims. It's doing incredible work in situation countries where the ICC is operative, focused on the most vulnerable victims that have no other sources often of of recompense, that have terrible medical conditions, mental health concerns that are lingering and even in some cases can be intergenerational. They need livelihood assistance. They need prosthetics. And the Trust Fund for Victims are able to provide this through local implementing partners that the United States already often supports. And so my hope is that Congress will be able to appropriate funds now to support the work of the Trust Fund for Victims going forward. And I know nobody likes to speak in hypotheticals, but do you think there are red lines that the ICC could cross that would see a return to the kind of hostility or a kind of freeze of relations in the last situation? I mean, there are some very complicated cases that the US doesn't like in a way that the ICC is looking in. There's a Palestine uh, situation. There's also Afghanistan, where Prosecutor Khan has now said he's deprioritizing the probe into what US forces are doing. But that could be reopened. Uh, Palestine could move forward quicker or differently. Do you see a potential for kind of freezing up again of relations? Well, you've mentioned the two most acute situations of concern to the United States. I think in both cases, we're in a good place with respect to the court. And so it remains to be seen what happens. But there's no question that if the office of the prosecutor were to recommit attention to potential U.S. personnel that have been deployed in various conflict situations, they would probably make it more difficult to do assistance. So that's the that's the arrangement that we're in. But now that we're in a situation in which, as you mentioned, 
the um, focus on any foreign forces within Afghanistan has been deprioritized and focused instead on ongoing abuses, including crimes that probably rise to the level of crimes against humanity. I know there's a new policy now on gender persecution that our office commented upon that's excellent. I think it's important to utilize those charges. They're available to the ICC and they have not yet been utilized. And so looking at gender persecution within Afghanistan, but also attacks on minorities such as the Hazara, potentially even rising to the level of genocide when you're dealing with a protected group. That's You're in the genocide world and then you have to look closely at issues of intent and whether the violence rises to the level that the prosecutor wants to charge genocide. So, you know, th those are the situations that are going to be most acute, and we're obviously continuing to watch them carefully. But at the moment, the prosecutor is focused on perpetrators that deserve international opprobrium, like the Taliban and ISIS-K in Afghanistan. And uh, Israel-Palestine, is there, are there red lines there? That situation has been somewhat stalled. It's not clear to what extent that's moving forward. I know that the prosecutor is hiring for individuals to focus on that, including Arabic speakers. We've seen terrible attacks on civilian infrastructure coming from Gaza. It's a very difficult situation. And so, again, it's one to be to keep an eye on. Um, can we turn now to the U.S. position on the Ukraine special tribunal debate? As far as I know, there isn't an actual U.S. position. Can you just clarify if there is one or if there isn't one? And where are the edges of the debate for you? Yeah, it's not clear where this proposal of Ukraine is moving. There still seems to be some questions about what the preferred modality is. And I know that the international community is engaged in a very robust conversation now about whether to focus on more of a hybrid model. And we know, of course, that hybrid institutions can be primarily domestic with some international elements added, or they can be primarily international with a high degree of domestic involvement. I'm thinking of the distinction between the special chambers in Bosnia-Herzegovina, which were very much a domestic institution with international infusions of expertise, staff, personnel, subject matter jurisdiction, etc., Versus, say, the special court for Sierra Leone, which was unequivocally an international tribunal, but with a number of domestic elements included within that. And judges, staff, even elements of Sierra Leonean law were, were able to be prosecuted before the special court for Sierra Leone. So that's one model. There's also a second model that would be more of a, of a Nuremberg-style model, a group of states coming together to draft a treaty. That obviously will take, I think, quite a bit more time to implement, and there's less precedent for that. And then Ukraine has also sought a General Assembly resolution that would identify international commitment to prosecute the crime of aggression and potentially move towards some sort of a, a special tribunal that would be devoted to this. The Dutch have come forward, I think, with a very productive proposal, which is the creation of an interim prosecutor's office. This would be somewhat agnostic as to what the eventual modality would look like to allow the international community a little bit more time to think through all of the various implications of the different models being contemplated. And so the idea of this IPO would be to bring together kind of ace prosecutors, Ukrainians, but also potentially international experts, to start to collect evidence focused specifically on the crime of aggression and acts of aggression committed by Russia's forces. But this IPO could also take the next step, which would be to identify who beyond President Putin and maybe his most immediate inner circle, Lavrov, etc., are also responsible. As we know, aggression is a leadership crime. The crime is defined in terms of those in a position to direct, plan, implement acts of aggression on behalf of a state against another state. And so identifying the next sort of four to 10, four to 15 that might be subject to an aggression prosecution, that may take some time. And so that is something that this interim prosecutor's office could devote their attention to. 
creating these dossiers, maybe even model indictments that then could be handed off to whatever the institution is that's ultimately created by the international community. So the United States is engaged in these negotiations. There'll be a number of meetings happening over the next month, particularly in the run-up to the anniversary of Russia's reinvasion of Ukraine on February 24th. And so we're trying to be an active participant, put forward our views, but also really recognize the passion that the Ukrainians feel for the need to prosecute the crime of aggression because they see that as the origins of all the other war crimes and atrocities that have followed from that initial decision to invade a sovereign nation completely unprovoked. And so they care deeply about this and we want to we want to hear them. We want to answer their call, but we also want to work in partnership with our European friends and allies. So I hear that you run through a couple of models and you're very much supporting Ukraine. Is there a particular model that would be your your preference or is it uh, does the US or you not express preference in that case? We haven't really expressed a preference. I think there's a lot of interest in hybrid models. They seem to be quite successful. They don't take the level of resource investment sometimes that a standalone big international institution would do. One of the other things that's appealing about this IPO is the ability to sequence the work of prosecuting the crime of aggression. I think nobody wants to repeat the experiment of the Special Tribunal for Lebanon, where you have this elaborate, enormous, expensive institution that Lebanon is expected to cover half of its budget when it has so many other needs, and Ukraine is going to have enormous needs as well, to pay judges that are generally not working or operative. And so if you could imagine a sequenced approach where you focus on core investigative work and then you maybe pause until there's an individual of interest who's suddenly in custody, and then you could ramp up, have a roster of judges, call the judges to task, have them confirm indictments, and then move forward on a potential prosecution, but in a very focused, nimble sort of a way, rather than building everything up front and then having it be potentially years until we have any Russian perpetrator in custody. Now, it's been very interesting to see schisms developing within the Russian defense infrastructure. And so you could imagine a situation in which someone has a decision to make. Do I stay and maybe fall out of a window or do I leave and face international prosecution? And we've seen in the past, Bosco and Taganda comes to mind, that when people are faced with that decision, they choose prosecution because they know they're going to be treated fairly. They'll have defense counsel. They'll be able to put on their best arguments and maybe even turn state's witness and be able to provide evidence against their former Confederates. So this is the world we're in. So much uncertainty. And so creating an institution up front may not make sense rather than taking this more sequenced approach to prepare for an eventual prosecution if and when custody is able to be achieved. One thing comes to mind when you talk about this sequenced bit, that's what they tried with the Kosovo specialist chambers. You had this investigative uh, mechanism first, and then there was a case. Now the office of the prosecutor would be different, I guess, the IPO. Is that also because for the Kosovo court after the special investigative commission, the office of the prosecutor of the new court had to kind of redo everything before they could actually move forward on the cases? Is the idea then to kind of streamline that issue because that that is what you see if you have an IPO without well they have a mandate but without knowing exactly how it's going to be afterward are you not also just creating kind of double work even though you're trying very hard not to it's it's definitely an issue of concern and and we've seen in the past that justice efforts have often been preceded by commissions of inquiry fact finding missions etc and sometimes they're operating under different 
potentially substantive law, certainly different theories of responsibility, different burdens of proof, not necessarily meeting a criminal law standard in previous models. I think now the difference is we would definitely be focused on achieving a criminal law model, probably using either the Ukrainian national definition or some version of the Rome statute definition in Article 8 bis, depending on, again, what the model is. If it's under Ukrainian law, Ukrainians have already started to bring some aggression cases within their system. So there's going to be a little bit of precedent there to be developed. I think the model of the the Kosovo specialist chambers, as you mentioned, they did fold in that investigative task force. But you're right that any prosecutor, if it's not the same human being, is going to want to revisit and review those files before they're going to put their name to any indictment. So there may be a bit of a delay there. But if it's the same human beings involved who simply get absorbed into this new institution, then I think it's much more seamless process and you can avoid the kind of pause that had to happen so that the the original chief prosecutor could sort of review everything and get their their staff up to speed. I just want to note your um, reference to Bosco and Taganda, the former Congolese warlord. He walked into US embassy, didn't he? So have you got all of your embassies kind of on alert for spare Russians who might walk in? Indeed, we produced early on what's called an all deck, which is essentially a cable that goes out to every embassy of the United States, in which we outlined all of the various accountability pathways that are currently being explored when it comes to Russia. The Bosco and Taganda situation was quite an interesting one. I was serving as deputy in this office when I got the call in the middle of the night that I needed to come into the situation room. So, you know, there we all were essentially in our jammies, and we got word that he had showed up. And in fact, the story gets told is that he approached the embassy. And the Marine was there, as they are, <laughs> bless them, protecting the embassy premises. And he said, I'm Bosco in Taganda. I want to turn myself in and I want to be taken to The Hague. And the guy was like, yeah, yeah, buddy, whatever. Get, off you go. You know, come back. So the, he came back sort of an hour later. He was like, no, no, really. I'm Bosco in Taganda. I want to be taken to The Hague. And so the guy was like, all right, hang on a second. Pulled up and was like, wow, that's Bosco in Taganda. So then we had this crazy situation where we didn't know how to get him to The Hague. Like, how do you physically transport someone? We're not a state party. We had no actual obligations. We had no legal basis necessarily to hold him, right? It was not a Security Council referral. It was a self-referral by the DRC of the situation in its own territory. He could have theoretically walked out of the door at any minute if he had wanted to, but then would he have been killed on the street by his former Confederates who had been routed next door in the DRC? And so, you know, he obviously had made the, the self-protective choice that, you know, he was safer in the embassy compound. So it took us a couple of days. The ICC was able to procure a plane. They brought it to the Kigali airport. We were able to transport him safely to the airfield and then get him transported up to the up to the Hague. But it was a, a sort of heady, heady couple of days until we finally learned that wheels were down and he was officially in ICC custody and we could all breathe an enormous sigh of relief. Picking up also on the, the kind of the range of accountability mechanisms for Ukraine, we do have some critique from the ICC prosecutor suggesting that if you go down this route where aggression has its own new tribunal that might be kind of diverting resources or at least diverting everybody's efforts away from some kind of joint coordinated effort. How do you respond to that critique? Indeed, I think it's a very real concern that the idea of standing up a new institution could be a distraction from existing pathways to justice and existing institutions that are already fully operational. And in this regard, we're talking not only about the ICC, but also the prosecutor general in Ukraine that has a very active docket. They've 
registered something like 60,000 potential war crimes, working through those now to determine how to prioritize which ones to pursue, who you have custody over, whether you have sufficient evidence. Is it unequivocally a war crime? Is there some question that there was a military objective in the vicinity, et cetera? So all of that work is underway. Of course, Europe now is united in a way that has never has been in terms of its war crimes units working together in partnership. There's a joint investigative team that has formally been formed, but also we have Eurojust, the Genocide Network, and the United States is participating in both of those efforts. So all three of these different pathways are operational. And so even at the ICC ASP, it was apparent that the aggression tribunal was taking up a lot of oxygen in that meeting. We were supposed to be focused on the review process, implementing those recommendations, on the budget, on cooperation, enhancing cooperation, et cetera. And a big chunk of the conversation was devoted to the aggression tribunal. Now, this is where I think taking a more focused approach would do a better job of not distracting from the work of the ICC. Whatever approach we take should be additive and not subtractive. And so I think there's a way for these to work together. I think prosecutors are increasingly sharing information, particularly if they can form some sort of a mutual legal assistance arrangement, so that as there are prosecutors that are looking at aggression, find that particular acts of bombardment, for example, may also constitute war crimes. That could be shared with the prosecutorial teams through the JIT, and then vice versa, to the extent that information is found about, for example, the chain of command, who ordered particular attacks. That information could be shared with this interim prosecutor's office to help build out the chain of command and identify that core group of individuals who might be appropriately prosecuted under an aggression rubric. And so you can imagine these efforts working together, but that coordination takes work and we need to be very, very synced up in order to not get the kind of distraction of of attention that might happen if we're too fragmented as a system. Do you think if we're talking about the IPO and the delivering people to it or, or providing possible prosecutors, would the U.S. provide prosecutors for that in the way that they have for the Kosovo tribunal, for example? I know that our Department of Justice is very focused on this conflict. I traveled to Kyiv with the attorney general, and he was able to announce the creation of a war crimes team within his experts on international crimes. He's also appointed the indomitable (laughs) Eli Rosenbaum as his special counselor on war crimes. And so I think there would be very a lot of interest in seconding personnel. We have not joined the JIT formally, but we're a participating partner. I'm not sure what the term is exactly, but we're working together with those JIT members in order to share information. And now we have this new legal authority to be able to prosecute war crimes domestically, that there's real possibility of us playing our part in a sort of a burden-sharing arrangement with all of the other states that are very much focused on this. So I, I would hope that we would be able to participate in various ways. I also want to call attention to a project that my office is funding with the prosecutor general in Ukraine, and this is really complementarity in action. So, you know, as you've covered multiple times, the ICC is premised on this idea that, and, and this is how Prosecutor Khan has, has articulated, that when states step in, the ICC steps out. And so we have been working, in fact, prior to February 24th last year with the prosecutor general to strengthen their ability to do war crimes cases in their own courts. This has involved seconding experts to be advisors to prosecutors and investigators. There's a prosecutorial support team, and then there are mobile justice teams that can go immediately out into the field to help to preserve evidence and to structure an investigation after an attack, for example, has happened. This is now been broadened, and we're calling it the Atrocity Crimes Advisory Group because the UK and the European Union have joined with the United States to help fund this and to fund implementing partners on the ground in Ukraine to support the Office of the Prosecutor General. 
We have $10 million that we've been able to give to Georgetown University as our primary implementing partners. Global Rights Compliance, Pravo Justice, IDLO, they're all partners in this effort as well with funding from other sources. So uh, we've never seen, I don't think, the international community this united around the imperative of justice since the Nuremberg era and then maybe in the 1990s after the Cold War when the Security Council was suddenly able to operate again and saw justice as a important component, if indeed an essential component of instantiating international peace and security. And that's when the two ad hocs were created. And so we're at a new kind of a Nuremberg moment here. And that's why, you know, all hands on deck, I think. And the, the more individuals we have focused on investigating the commission of war crimes and other atrocities, the better. The key now is one of coordination. And you talked a little bit before about the new uh, jurisdiction and the new possibilities you have to try cases, war crimes cases in the U.S. Why did it take the U.S. so long to kind of get on the universal jurisdiction road, you think? Well, I should emphasize that we already have the ability to exercise present-in jurisdiction over a number of offenses within the U.S. code. War crimes was a weird little gap and has odd historical reasons, which I can explain quickly. But we already have the ability to exercise jurisdiction over genocide for individuals who are found present in the United States, torture, a whole range of trafficking and forced labor offenses, a whole range of terrorism offenses, and deployment of child soldiers. Back in the day, in the 1990s, when the War Crimes Act was first enacted, the, there was not interest amongst, ironically, the Department of Justice to have full present-in jurisdiction. I think they felt they would be overwhelmed by cases. There was the thought of kind of opening floodgates that they would not be able to respond to. And so while the Departments of Defense and State both argued in congressional testimony that we should exercise present-in jurisdiction. That is what the Geneva Conventions require of signatories. It was the DOJ's position that ultimately prevailed. And so that remained the case since the mid-90s when that statute was first drafted. And it took the conflict in Ukraine to really shed a light on the practical impact of this gap in our law. And now we had an administration-supported approach and then Congress as well aligned. And so this statute was able to be passed. Now, a gap that still exists involves crimes against humanity. We have no ability to prosecute crimes against humanity within the U.S. under any jurisdictional basis. I think that's partly due to the fact that there hasn't been a dedicated treaty yet, although we know that effort is underway, and that I think will be helpful to create a consensus definition. Senator Durbin and some other members of Congress have promoted a draft bill that has been floating around since 2009. It's just never been able to garner the kind of bipartisan support and consensus that would be needed to get this passed. We tried to push it forward in the last term. It didn't happen. There were so many other things on the table, including ASPA amendments and the War Crimes Act. And so, you know, the Crimes Against Humanity bill lives to fight another day. And hopefully at, at some point we'll be able to say that we can also exercise jurisdiction over crimes against humanity, including present-in jurisdiction. We've got planned to do a podcast on that with uh, Leila Sadat and others, so we'll, we'll definitely ask those questions. Can we just turn to a few other situations? Let's um, start Liberia. There's pressure there for a potential special court for you know the war crimes that went back years and years and years. What's are you listening to civil society? What's the U.S. position? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked about that because I really take my title as the ambassador at large for global criminal justice very seriously and. The situation in Ukraine is so enormous that it could 
absorb all of our energies. And I'm really trying hard not to have that happen. And so very early in my tenure, I actually took two trips to Africa. To the Central African Republic was my first stop, and then to Ethiopia, where there's a very interesting conversation happening around transitional justice. And then the second trip was to Liberia and to the Gambia, where they're both are having very interesting conversations, had very successful truth commission processes, issued very astute recommendations, and then implementation stalled. In Liberia, it stalled for lack of political will and the fact that individuals who were adversely mentioned within the Truth Commission report are still in positions of power and are able to block any forward progress. In the Gambia, it was a combination of, you know, the pandemic and, you know, all that that entailed. And so both situations now, I think, are reviving interest in this. So my trip to Liberia was, I think, incredibly uh, emotional for me to see the the passion that survivors are still holding for the promise of justice and the recommendations that were built within the Truth Commission report. They they want to see that moved forward. There is a draft bill for a hybrid court that would try both war and economic crimes, recognizing the linkage between atrocities and corruption, how corruption fuels atrocities and individuals will promote atrocities in order to be able to engage in corruption and to self-deal and to steal the, the natural resources of particular situations. And so hearing from civil society members, but also members of government who are very committed to this pathway as well, I was able to write a, an open letter to the Liberian people, continuing to encourage them. And I was able to visit the Lutheran church where there was the, one of the largest massacres that have, has occurred of 600 souls lost their lives in that massacre. And unfortunately, there isn't even a memorial really to that massacre. There's efforts at that church, but there's a parking lot on top of the graves where those individuals are buried. And so I'm trying to shed some light on that and, and maybe to be able to bring some resources to bear to create a proper memorial for the Lutheran Church massacre. So Liberia is definitely going to be a, a real priority for our office. And I know the ambassadorial and the embassy team there is very committed as well. And one of the countries you mentioned you also visited is CAR, and that is also on our list of things to ask after. The special court uh, in uh, the Central African Republic had its mandate renewed for five years, but it held one trial and it suffered some political setbacks. Is it still worth the U.S. support, in your opinion? It is. We've given, a, I think, two $3 million gifts now to that effort. It was really inspiring to visit the special criminal court. Of course, this is something I had read about and written about and saw on paper, but to be able to actually see it operating and to meet with the hybrid teams, you know, judges, prosecutors, staff, all working in tandem on behalf of survivors within CAR with very little international attention and certainly not enough resources in a very difficult political environment. But the court has been able to achieve a number of important successes, so much so that, as you may know, the prosecutor of the ICC has said, I don't need to advance any additional indictments in CAR because the special criminal court is working and working well. And we were able to encourage greater cooperation between those two entities so that they can be sharing information with each other, coordinating around particular defendants, keeping an eye on those defendants who are still at large, et cetera. So seeing this kind of three levels of complementarity where you have national courts bringing a few cases, you have the special criminal court bringing maybe some of those tough cases, and then the ICC bringing in, you know, cases against in individuals of sort of international renown. And that's a model that we can imagine being reproduced with other hybrid institutions going forward.
Talking about hybrid institutions, South Sudan has had kind of the suggestion that it's meant to have some kind of a hybrid court for a long time. But I mean, politically, it's going absolutely nowhere. I mean, partly because of everything that's going wrong politically there. What is the US position there? Indeed, the parties have committed to a hybrid court for South Sudan. It's on paper. They have ratified that. And the AU is also supposed to be a sort of guarantor and a key partner in order to make that happen. We, the, Our Congress appropriated $5 million for that effort, and we were not able to use that money for that because there wasn't, as you mentioned, the political will domestically to be able to move forward on that effort. So I'm very hopeful that these current talks that are happening will create a better environment to include justice and then also transitional justice, so not just criminal accountability, but thinking about a truth-telling exercise, thinking about reparations, thinking about guarantees of non-repetition. All of this should be part of a response to the terrible violence that uh, South Sudan has experienced since its independence. It was such heady days when it achieved its independence, and it has not lived up to that excitement. And I, I would hope that the leaders would come together for the good of South Sudan and for the good of the people and for the future of that country to instantiate a new rule of civilian rule and also focused on transitional justice in a very holistic and inclusive way. Thank you. I think we've covered almost everything that we had in mind. So before last question, before we launch into the asymmetrical haircuts question is, what should we have asked you and didn't we? Did we miss something in uh, our vast array of uh, situations and cases that you would like to highlight? Well, it was, as usual, a, quite a tour of the horizon. We covered a, a number of different situations. I think there's still a lot of interest in focusing on Latin America. I know you've covered the situation in Guatemala. That was an excellent podcasts were quite concerned about see, the, seeing some of the attacks on the independence of the judiciary and the impact that that is having on some of the historical dirty war cases. I'm really keen to see the El Mazote case move forward in El Salvador. That would be a great situation for you to cover at some point. Not enough attention is on that case. It's, again, a, a terrible massacre from the, the dirty war era, and it, it deserves justice. And it was moving forward, but has gotten a little bit stalled. I think Ethiopia is worthy of your attention as well. I was there during a period in which there was a pause in the hostilities, and so attention was starting to turn to the idea of transitional justice, and they have now produced a very sophisticated, what they're calling a green paper, that sets out a number of options for all of the different pillars of transitional justice. Then, of course, we had a resumption of hostilities, and it felt like, oh, we were now backsliding. And then Lo and behold, we now have a cessation of hostilities agreement that the United States was very involved in trying to broker with the parties, including some senior leaders of the African Union and other sort of notable figures, including former President Obasanjo, played an extremely important role, and former President of Kenya played a very important role um, in trying to bring the parties together and to get them to demobilize and to agree to a path forward. And transitional justice is specifically called out in that cessation of hostilities agreement. And so, again, all parties are on record as recognizing the importance of of that. There's a national dialogue happening that's that's going to be focused on this, as well as the interministerial task force, which has been given the responsibility of implementing that little provision, that so important provision within the cessation of hostilities agreement. So again, I would recommend to your listeners to, to keep track of that and to educate themselves on the, the situation because it's going to be incredibly important for the future of Ethiopia to avoid the terrible violence that happened in the North and that also is happening elsewhere around the country. Great. Good tip for us. I don't know if you can manage to do this, Beth, but we tend to ask people now, what's your favorite case? If you think about stuff that you've looked at going back over the years, what's the one that sticks in your mind? 
Well, very early in my career, you know, my first job out of law school was at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, and I was a baby prosecutor in the office of the prosecutor. And so many of my former colleagues have now gone on to do incredible things. And so it's really neat that this little cohort that were reviving the promise of Nuremberg and the renaissance of international criminal justice have just gone on to take, you know, incredible roles in the the larger ecosystem of international justice. So I worked on the Tadic Appeal. And I still teach that case, even though it's now, you know, however many years old, you know, more than, I guess, 20 something years old, 30 even. I just think what it did, it's it's the sort of Marbury versus Madison of international criminal justice about the ability of the Security Council to instantiate justice, the, the fact that justice plays a role in peace and security, but also the questions about jurisdiction over war crimes and non-international armed conflicts, whether or not you need a war nexus link for crimes against humanity to be prosecuted, all of these sort of open questions that had not been really thoughtfully considered or adjudicated since Nuremberg were suddenly revived. And we had to, it was like a blue sky moment. We had to sort of figure out like what was going to be the new canon of international criminal justice. And so I still love the fact that I was able to work on that case. And I still love going back and reading that case. Uh, just for the people who are not so up to the U uh, Yugoslav part of it, this is uh, the first case ever before the ICTY of Dusko Tadic, who was a camp guard, I think, in Omarska or somewhere in, in Priedor, and who was arrested or found in Germany and then brought to the ICTY. And that case, because it was the first one, they had to adjudicate can the ICTY exist? Is this all lawful? You know, how, how are we going to do this thing really now that we have a defendant here? And then our other question is always, we like to pick your brain about what you're reading, listening, watching on Netflix or HBO, or if you're like very, very dedicated in only watching official, I don't know, documentaries about war crimes. We don't know. Or C-SPAN. What do you watch back on C-SPAN? I think you were, you were off on holiday over over Christmas, weren't you? Some island somewhere. So did you get any time some to do some reading? We were in Hawaii, indeed. And I had with me Reed Brody's To Catch a Dictator. And this was the gift I gave my all of my team members. I got each of them a copy of the book. So this is, of course, the incredible story of catching and bringing to justice Hisan Habre, the former dictator of Chad, and the amazing story of sort of finding a cache of moldering documents that was able to be then, you know, secreted out of the country. And the fact that survivors like Suleiman Gengeng never, ever gave up hope and they continue to fight. And so this was incredible partnership between international advocates and local domestic survivors and advocates that just pushed the international community. And this case, as you know, went to the International Court of Justice. It went to the ECOSOC. I mean, it just went all over. There was all this incredible jurisprudence developed from it. And then he was ultimately convicted. And, you know, that's that was the end of that. And so it's just an incredible story. So that's been really fun to be reading. That book is going to be uh, the focus of our first ever war criminals book club that we're going to be telling people people about as well because we we think that's a really nice a nice book to talk about with people because it does does tell you a lot. Now, Beth, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Uh, I know that it's been difficult for you. It must be always difficult for you to carve even half an hour out of your uh, busy schedule. So, thank you very much. No, it's my pleasure. I'm a real fan and it's I have a huge portfolio, but you're have a great listenership and I hope that they'll reach out to me with any questions and I look forward to seeing you around international justice circles. So thanks for including me on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks. So I I found that really interesting in lots of different levels. So Steph, what struck you? Well, I really love the Bosco and Taganda story. I am now imagining this kind of weird handout leaflet 
that they're that they're handing out to all U.S. embassies just in case some kind of high-level Russian commando drops in. Well, exactly. I mean, I occasionally get invited to a weird thing called the Marine Corps Ball, which is an annual affair, and you get to sit with Marines. In my case, it's been the ones protecting the American embassy here in The Hague. And I was kind of thinking about asking them, so show me what's in your wallet. You know, do you have a a handy check to see if this is Vladimir Putin or not? Oh, maybe they have a deck of cards like they have in Iraq. (laughs) Who would be, you know, when Iraq, they had this thing where I think Saddam Hussein was the ace of spades or something like that. But I do think that what she had to say about the US position on the special court was uh, interesting. The idea that she was kind of pushing, I think, beyond potentially the top three leaders. And she was pushing quite strongly for kind of a staged approach, for an approach where you, you, you start doing the work now probably here in the Hague if if she's uh, if she's right on that and 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 then you gradually build up absolutely and she apart from of all of the focus on Ukraine she challenges to look at El Salvador at Ethiopia and you know we love to do podcasts about that so this is also a call out to our community to please tell us who we should interview on those issues and we need to make sure that we do have local experts. We've just been called out on that on Twitter. We do try to make sure that we do no podcast about us without us, but we don't always manage perfectly. So make sure that, that you help us to to have the right experts in the room. Um, we did a quick shout, I think, via Beth, about the new kind of behind the scenes podcast that we're going to do, the War Criminals Book Club. Maybe you can say a bit more about that stuff. Yeah, so in an effort to raise some funds to also help fund our producer who does a great job making us sound lovely on this on this podcast, we are going to open our own page on Patreon where you can pay a monthly fee and then get extra content. And one of those things will be the podcast on the War Criminals Book Club where we read books about obviously war crimes and or war criminals. And this is a space where you can subscribe. And we also are looking for other ways to engage with our supporters, maybe meeting up and also looking at your suggestions and possibly some swag. Yep, definitely. Swag should be there and schmoozing should be there. And a fun podcast to listen to should also be there. And the first book, I think, as we mentioned with Beth, that we're going to do is uh, Reed Broder's latest tome. Um, I think it's got quite a lot of levels that are interesting, but I think there's also quite a lot to discuss about this kind of the idea of the lone figure sort of pushing forwards to justice, you know, the, the kind of, you know, one hand raised up to the sky, sort of leading the people on and whether that's really how justice get, gets to happen. So I think we couldn't have a fun discussion about that. It's going to be fun. Yeah, absolutely. So tune in for that. And if not, tune in for our next full length episode, because we'll keep making them. Thank you. Thanks. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.